The following is a message from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Well, Lord our God, how thankful we are that you, by your sovereign grace, have called us out of death and darkness and alienation and into the life and the light and the communion of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and into the family of God, people who, like us, are guilty, fallen, and yet redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Brothers and sisters now, across all the boundaries that otherwise divide humanity, we are the one people of God and called to grow together, to be your instruments, to nurture and to teach and to admonish and to encourage one another. Father, we thank you for that ministry that you have given to us together by the gifts of your spirit. And we pray for your servant as he brings, you, brings us the word today that your name would be glorified, that Jesus would be exalted in our hearts and in our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm delighted to get to introduce to you today our guest speaker, Dr. Charles Donahue. Uh, Charles is the uh, coordinator for the Presbyterian Church in America's Christian Education and Publications Committee, uh, one of our main standing committees in the PCA. Charles uh, has served uh, as a pastor in um, at Alabama and in Georgia before he came to uh, CENP 30 years ago. I told him I might say that. He'll say some other things about uh, his connections with us as well. He is a graduate of Columbia Theological Seminary and Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, and did graduate work at the University of Georgia, too. He's done some important writing on Christian education, including, as many of you know, Making Kingdom Disciples, which came out a couple years ago and is one of your required textbooks. Do your reading. Charles, come and bring the word to us. Wait, don't sit down. I hope you'll notice that Dennis and I wanted to project a unity uh, in our worship today. It is a great pleasure for us to be here. I always enjoy coming to the campus. If you have your scriptures, turn to Mark, the 8th chapter. And I'm going to read beginning at verse 11 through the 21st verse. I'm I'm jumping into a flow here, but I'll hope to explain that as we continue. Hear the word of the Lord. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got back into the boat and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus was aware of what they were saying. He said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full and broken pieces did you take up? They answered him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? May God bless us as we look at his word this morning. Uh, I've had the privilege of serving on the Westminster Seminary Board in Philadelphia for many years. Actually, I had the privilege of coming onto the board as we were birthing this seminary. Uh, and those, uh, those, those were good and exciting days. Uh, I have great passion for theological education, just so you'll know. Uh, but I, I think that's the real thrust of this passage if we look, look carefully at it. Uh, after having served the pastorate for 13 years, as, as Dennis said, and coming to my present role in the PCA, and having been among those, I happen to be the youngest among them, who formed the PCA, uh, making kingdom disciples in the context of theological education uh, has had a growing interest in my heart. At the first of the summer, I read a, a very interesting book that I've had the privilege of at least getting into the hands of a a number of seminary deans and and presidents, challenging them to read the book. It's called Theological Education Matters, Leadership Education for the Church. It's written by Linda Connell, who is a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. She wrote this book, and she's, I think Linda would be considered a, a consider herself in my conversations with her, somewhat of a disciple of Ted Ward, who wrote the foreword uh, to that, that book. Recently at our fall Christian Education and Publications meeting in Atlanta, we spent several hours discussing certain aspects of that book along with John Frame's paper on theological education. Uh, given our role in the PCA from Christian Education and, and Publications, along with my own personal growing concern about the whole subject of theological education and where the church is today. Uh, That was an interesting and an important discussion. Uh, the, The concern about discipling God's covenant people with a kingdom world and life view perspective is, is extremely important, which leads me to ask you this morning, why are you here at seminary? What, what is your purpose in being here at Westminster West? People like Linda Cornell, Cornell and Ted Ward and, and John Frame and others have raised interesting and important questions about the seminary's role in this whole spectrum of theological education in the church. And... Uh, Without being too simplistic, I just want to suggest that you're here as part of your preparation for your unique role that you will serve in God's church and in God's kingdom to further help people to know who God is, what his kingdom is all about, and where they fit as members of his church and kingdom. But I have to say, sadly, I don't think a great host of our people are connecting the dots in this area between what they profess to believe and how they put it together 
uh, in their daily lives. And I would like to give an optimistic spin on this. I want to believe that there are more people who really want to know how to connect the dots, what it means to be a Christian, how to make a difference uh, in today's world, and how to have an impact for the sake of God. Now, I may be overly optimistic, but I want to believe that. I want to think that there are many people around, like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, who are genuinely trying to put things together, but they're frustrated because they can't do it, and they're in need of someone to help them or to show them how to put it together. And that's where you and I enter this picture. We are God's called instruments to minister to people in the church so that they will be able to give a reason to anyone who asks them why they have their hope in Christ. That they will be able to connect the dots to keep them from falling into the dualistic and pluralistic traps in this neo-paganistic world. I've taught a couple of hundred people over the last three years uh, in seminary uh, based on my book, Making Kingdom Disciples, and being asked to teach that and amplify that. But I can't tell you out of those couple of hundred students how many of them have said to me, Charles, what, what? Well, they said Dr. Donahue, they were students, but uh, I encouraged them to call me Charles. Why, why haven't we heard this in our churches? That concerns me. I want to know why too. I want to understand why people say they don't understand about the church and the kingdom. And I couple that with what I and others have observed to conclude that there's obviously, even in our circles, a lack of understanding of the church and the kingdom. And that, that's not just my own. J.I. Packer writes about this. John R. Stott writes about this. Daryl Hart writes about it. And I could go on. The Ethiopian eunuch was a reader. But he didn't understand what he was reading until God provided Philip the evangelist to teach him. Now our Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 on the scripture makes it very clear that the scriptures are sufficient and perspicuous. It's also clear, though, that we need help oftentimes in understanding the scriptures and what they mean. Now, in Mark's gospel, which is the gospel of the kingdom, he's talking about the good news of the kingdom. But at this particular point in time, in verse 21 of our text, Jesus asked his 12 disciples, a very powerful and relevant question. And unlike the eunuch, he asked this question after the fact rather than the eunuch's question before the fact, Philip's question to the eunuch before the fact of having been taught. And I'll tell you, I've concluded this is a frightening passage of Scripture. As a matter of fact, it's so frightening, I may, may relate it to some other <laughs> frightening passages of Scripture like Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Let's develop the scenario so you'll understand what Mark is presenting here. 
And to do so, we have to understand this text in the, not only the immediate context, but in the whole context of the Gospel of Mark and then the whole story of, of, of redemption. Jesus had come back to Galilee after several months of absence uh, in that uh, land. Now, to get the full importance of, of this, we have to have an understanding of all the events that have gone on that Mark writes about uh, prior to this in his gospel. But r- the immediate context, right before returning to the Galilee, Jesus, one late one evening, fed 4,000 people with a few fish and seven baskets full left over. Now, that sounds like something he had done earlier, months earlier, before he left Galilee when he fed 5,000 plus. Could have been as many as 15,000 if their family was with them, as, as the scripture indicates. But he had fed 5,000 people. So he and his disciples, if you can get the picture in your mind, had been away from Galilee for several months up in the Gentile region to the north. And as he returned across the sea, Mark says the Pharisees came and they began to uh, argue with him. They didn't welcome him back. Glad to see you back, Jesus. They just wanted to argue and confront him. Right off the bat, they demanded a sign from Jesus to prove that he was from heaven. They did this, as Mark said, to test them. Actually, the word is is to tempt. And in doing this, they were fulfilling the role of Satan, who had early attempted Jesus in the wilderness. Who's the tempter? God doesn't tempt anyone. The tempter in this is Satan. And here Satan was not in the form of a serpent, but in the form of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And Jesus did not give in to Satan at this point as he did not do in the wilderness. He refused to fall into their trap. They had demanded a sign. But no sign was to be given to this generation. And all that would have happened if Jesus had given them a sign is that he would have played right into their hands. So Mark says, Jesus got back into the boat with his 12 disciples and went to the other side. Some suggested that Jesus left that scene in frustration, exasperation, and irritation. And we could understand that. We could identify with that if that's what had happened. I don't think that's the case. You see, at this point in time, Jesus knew something that not even his closest 12 disciples knew. What was it? And that's why he asked the question, do you understand what I know? Well, the passage is about Jesus seeing something that they did not see. And how he attempted to deal with it in order that they might know, see, and understand. I want you to picture this. Jesus and the twelve getting back into the boat, going back to the other side of the lake. I don't know how far they got. I don't know what time of day it was. But right off the bat, in the middle of this passage, it contains a very serious warning. The disciples all of a sudden 
you know what? We forgot to bring bread. They only had one loaf with them. Now, this was the third time in Mark's gospel that he's used bread already. And each time there is significant revelation about Jesus and the kingdom as well as their privilege and responsibilities. But they said, we only have one loaf of bread on board. Actually, there were two breads, which in turn surfaced two concerns. The first concern was with the disciples. They didn't have any bread and they were hungry. But the second concern came from, came from Jesus. He was concerned about their concerns, and so he injected these words. Watch out. I'm warning you. By your focusing on your, the bread or your lack of the bread, you're revealing something that tells me you are in spiritual jeopardy. Now, he's talking to his 12 disciples. These 12 had been with him for some time. They had seen him perform miracles. They had listened to his teaching. They had walked with him in Galilee. They had walked with him in the northern Gentile territory through that circuitous journey and that uh, territory. As Jesus was taking to them the kingdom and preaching the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. And I think the twelve at this point are representatives of those who have been with Jesus, heard his words, seen his miracles, uh, and still did not understand what he was teaching and who he was. Could that really happen? Well, that's why Jesus asked this question. Do you not yet understand? What's this all about? What's going on here that makes this such a frightening passage of Scripture? One that, as I said, I might rank up right along close to Hebrews 6. Well, he asked a question, and it's an open-ended question because Mark doesn't answer it. And there's a reason for that. Because we're going to see that he's using a little parabolic uh, genre here. And, and, and parable teaching brings us into the story. So we have to give some answers also. Now the 12 right off the bat dealt with priorities. Except their priority was food. They were hungry. <laughs> and they forgot to bring bread. And uh, they were concerned. They, they actually contradicted themselves right off the bat and saying we only have one bread because there were two there. They had seen Jesus. Now think about this. They had seen Jesus feed 5,000 plus hungry people <clears throat> with five loaves and two fish and 12 baskets full left over. They had seen Jesus feed 4,000 people just the day before, a few days before. And with seven fish, or with a few fish and seven loaves, and they had seven baskets of food left over. And now they're complaining. And they're worrying that they don't have any bread. Well, Jesus warned them then, saying, You need to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven. The yeast that permeates the dough to make the bread rise. The yeast that affects every part of the bread. And here's the parabolic language. What, what does this mean? Well, the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of, of Herod are obviously a warning to us, or especially to those 12 disciples. 
There's only one place in the New Testament that I can find one incident that's recorded both in Matthew 13 and Luke 13 where yeast is referred to in a positive way. All the other uh, seven or eight references to yeast are negative. Matter of fact, you remember the rabbis used to use the metaphor of yeast to talk about the sinfulness of the human heart through and through. And so this is a warning. It's, it's not a positive. It's a negative passage. In Matthew 16, 12, the yeast, Matthew says the yeast refers to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Luke 12, he says that it's the reference to the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Well, Mark, again, doesn't explain all the d- details of this to us. Uh, hence, we have to answer the question ourselves. Do you not yet understand? So, we will know how to proceed with this. Let me just simply say, generally, that the yeast of the Pharisees is a reference to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, which leads to hardening of the heart. They could, nothing could convince them of who Jesus was and about his kingdom. The yeast or the leaven uh, permeated their lives. Uh, the yeast of Herod was probably a reference to the double-mindedness of Herod, if you read about it early on in, in Mark's gospel. Now, why did Mark bring bread and yeast into this particular story at this time? Simply, I think, to show the disciples that they did not see everything that was there to see. They had not yet connected the dots. They had not really self-consciously encompassed God in their world and life view. They only saw one loaf of bread, when actually there were two breads that they should have seen. And as they were discussing this with Jesus and with others, Jesus heard them talking about this, and he said, Why are you talking about not having bread? And from that point on in the conversation, Jesus begins to ask his disciples a series of questions. Don't you understand? Don't you see? Have you not heard? Have your eyes not seen and your ears not heard? Don't you remember anything that you've heard and seen and experienced? He said, well, let me help you. Let's do a little review, a good teaching technique. He said, you remember when I fed 5,000 plus with the the five loaves and two fish? How much was left over? Then he said, you remember how how I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and few fish, and there were seven baskets full left over? And you know, they answered correctly to both his questions. And then he said to them, do you not yet understand? Understand what? Who I am? What I have taught? What I have demonstrated uh, in your presence? I am the bread of life. I am the miracle of life. I can feed many people with as little as possible. And you have seen me do it on at least two occasions. And you're saying we only have one loaf among the 12 of us. And we're hungry. And Jesus said, you're in danger of being double-minded like Herod. But even more so, you're in danger of the leaven of the Pharisees 
in hypocrisy and the hardening of your heart. Now, Jesus wasn't warning them for their faith. He was warning them about not seeing and not understanding what they believed. You've heard my word. You've listened to what I said. You've seen me do these miracles. And yet you do not understand. You know, I agree with James Edwards in his commentary on Mark, Mark's gospel that this passage of scripture is a great apologetic for Christian education. If we needed one, this would be a good place to turn to because of his emphasis regarding the danger of not adding to our faith understanding. Intellectual and spiritual blindness can lead to a hardening of the heart as it was with the Pharisees. We must add understanding to our faith. No simple belief without substance will work in Jesus' presence. If we do not understand who Jesus is and what it means, even though we may believe who he is, without understanding, Jesus said, we are in trouble. In other words, guys, your view of reality has not self-consciously encompassed me and the kingdom. And your focus on the lack of bread merely demonstrates that you are in a spiritually danger zone. Beware. And Mark doesn't tell us how this was resolved. Of course, we learn the rest of the story as we read on in the Gospels. But don't be double-minded. Don't be hypocritical. Or you may find your heart being hardened. Being with Jesus, they saw, they heard, and yet they did not understand, hence Jesus' warning. Now, how much we we need to know and understand in order to confess Christ is not clearly spelled out in the Scripture. But the truth is, if we do profess Jesus, we must understand what that confession means. Jesus is the Lord. And we, like the disciples, have to respond to his question. Do you not yet understand? Do you not yet get it? Have you failed to grasp the reality of who God is and how he relates to his creation and covenant family? Have we not begun to understand something of the privileges and responsibilities that are ours as members of his kingdom? Have we not yet seen the whole story of creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation? Jesus, the King, the Messiah, has brought in his kingdom. And we must listen to him and understand what he says and accept it for ourselves. Then no signs will be necessary. And when they are given, they will only be icing on the cake. Now, you and I are called to do ministry. To help people understand theology. To know how to express that theology in the language of the people. And we must work hard, hard at that task. And as we do, we have to remember that until this time, the disciples had been with the master teacher. They had heard his teaching. They had seen him in action as he was unveiling the kingdom. And they still had not gotten 
the message. There'll be times, I can tell you in your ministry, when it may become a reality to you that, hey, my people are not really getting the message. They're not really understanding what it means to be kingdom disciples. They don't understand what it means to incorporate Christ as Lord and King in all areas of life. They haven't understood that Christianity is a 24-7 religion. But even in those moments, we have to persevere in our teaching ministry and our modeling before them ministry. Seminary training is one of those instruments that God uses to prepare and equip, uh, through the Holy Spirit, people to teach and preach the good news of the kingdom of God in a way that they can understand it and make application of it to their lives. And God uses us as a key to helping people to develop a transformed mind that knows how to think God's thoughts after him. And to use us to help people to understand the reality that it's not what I think about God that really matters. But it's what God thinks about himself and reveals to me in his word that really. I love Psalm 139. But especially verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. David didn't say how precious are my thoughts about you, O God. In one sense, I don't care what you think about God. But on the pastoral side, I really do. Because how you think about God reveals what's going on in your mind and heart. And our responsibility is to think God's thoughts after him. Bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And do that in a way that connects the dots. And when we can connect the dots, that path will lead us straight to the kingdom of God. Where we realize that no matter whether we eat or drink or read the Bible or watch television or go out with the family. We are to do all those things to the glory of God. And that's the truth. And that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to the disciples that they were not getting at that point. And that's our role. I believe as those involved in ministry to help people to understand the truth about God and Jesus and the kingdom and Christian living. And that's the end to which we've been called and to which we're here to further equip and prepare ourselves for that kind of ministry. And God bless you as you do that. These are very critical days, as you well know. A very critical moment for us to rise to the occasion to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your patience with us, for adding to our faith understanding And then for being willing to use us in that whole process with others. Father, help us in our ministry to know what it means to make kingdom disciples. To challenge people with that kingdom perspective and world and life view. As well as that daily, wonderful, personal, quiet time with you. Bless the faculty here in their labors. Use them in a mighty way. Bless those who study. Lord, let them be instruments in your hand to exalt your name, to proclaim your word, and to live your kingdom.
Forgive our sins, Lord. Help us to add daily to our faith understanding and remind us that it's not about us. It's about you, O Lord. For Jesus' sake, amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.